Welcome to Modern Immortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin is the founder and director of MAPS. Rick did his PhD at Harvard where he studied public policy and did his dissertation on the use of psychedelics and regulation. The work of MAPS has been focused on working with regulators in the hopes of bringing psychedelic therapies back to the public as legal therapies. Today, Rick talks about his work and how he relates to mortality. Welcome, Rick, to the podcast. So, okay. Rick, thanks for being here. Uh, um, could you go ahead and tell us about your first experience with mortality? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it happened when I was four years old. Um, my aunts were twins, uh, Miriam and Helen. And my, they were my mother's uh, younger sisters. I also, uh, my mother also had an older brother, but the twins were her younger sisters. And one of them got uh, leukemia. Hmm. And throughout, this was at a time shortly before they figured out how to treat it. So it was extremely fatal, but it was also at a time where people didn't talk about death. And so my aunt um, was never told that she was dying. She was just told that she was really ill. Um, they had a real big decision, my grandparents, about how to prepare Miriam, who it looked like was going to survive from what was going to be Helen's death. And so they decided to send them to different colleges. They'd been pretty inseparable and they had very much um, looked so much alike that they could, in high school, uh, one of them was better at math than the other and they could have the one that was good in math sneak into the math test for the other and pretend. <laughs> so they, they covered each other a lot like that. And they were super close. Um, but then they did go to different colleges. Um, then there was a really sad story about how um, Helen had a boyfriend and he ended up breaking up with her because he said he couldn't handle the emotions of being with her as she was dying. Hmm. So that feels you know, particularly cruel. Here you've got a young woman who's dying and her boyfriend's like, well, I can't handle the emotions. Meanwhile, of course, uh, she's got to handle it. So how was this communicated to you as a four-year-old? Well, we would just uh, increasingly visit her when she was um, in bed and suffering. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a family story that um, after she died, um, I was asking my uh, parents, um, will God give her her medicine? Mm. I didn't really understand the whole concept of death sure. at all, but it was um, a real eye-opener for me to have someone that I knew and that was close to um, die at such a young age. She died around 21. Yeah, and I'm assuming, just to clarify this, did the other twin, did she have leukemia as well? No, no, no. It, okay. it was like one of those um, flukes of biology. Now, let me expand on this, that 
so the aunt, one aunt did die of cancer. The other aunt, Miriam, got um, polio, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and then my mother, my father was a doctor, and my mother caught hepatitis from him, which he got from a needle stick. Sheesh. And then she was in bed, very sick. And so when I was really little, um, I was often taken care of by my grandmother, who herself had lost a child. But mm. the, my mother and um, her two sisters, you know, one died and the other two got seriously ill. My mom was in bed for part of a year. I, I remember being home as a little boy when my mom's in bed. This is after my um, aunt had died. And um, my mom is telling me um, that there's noises of our neighborhood kids in the background uh, playing outside. And my mom was like, go out and play with them. And I'm like, no, mom, I just want to stay here with you. When I would sleep over at my grandparents' house, um, they would tell me that in the middle of the night, I would get out of my bed and I would come. They, they had closed their bedroom door but I would sleep on the floor right outside their bedroom door. Mm. And the, when they asked me why I did that, um, I said, well, I didn't want them to leave without me knowing about it. Well, so, um, yet at the same time that all this is happening, I just felt such love and support by my grandparents and by this extended family. And I was the oldest of 10 uh, or I was the second oldest, actually, of 10 cousins. And we all lived, you know, within 20, 30 minutes of each other. Um, so I, I felt like I had this really big extended family. So even though my mom was really sick and my aunt had died, my other aunt was sick, um, I didn't really feel, I felt just secure, I guess, looking back on it. And I just think that's um, a lot from my grandmother. I mean, that's extremely fortunate that you can look back and find a sense of security at that young age being surrounded by so much illness and death. Do you think that those early experiences shaped you to, to where you are now in terms of this interest in psychedelics and moving therapies forward to reduce suffering or? No, I, I would say that happened a little bit later. Um, you know, so I was also really, educated quite a lot about the Holocaust and about the formation of the state of Israel. So I was born in 53. My great, great grandmother had moved to Palestine in 1904 in order to die and be buried on the Mount of Olives, which is right outside some of the gates of Jerusalem. And it's where, when the Messiah comes, supposedly, um, these are the people that are going to be resurrected first. So I, I had relatives that fought in the 48 war, the war of independence. Um, so I was just very aware of this mass murder that, that wiped out so many Jewish people, distant relatives. My grandfather came to America in 1920 from Poland and the family that he left behind mostly got murdered. Um, so I just was very much, uh, influenced by, talk about mortality, by this vast uh, machinery of killing and that the stories about Jews often being 
scapegoated throughout history and killed in various different ways. Um, so that sense of mortality in that way was a real big influence on my thinking. Just the fact that people would do that to other people, that there's just such an enormous potential for human cruelty up to the point of concentration camps and mass murder. And, you know, I was just educated from a very young boy about that. And I think <clears throat> because I had relatives in Palestine and then Israel, this whole idea of um, the death of all these uh, 6 million Jews by Hitler, but then somehow leading to the rebirth of the state of Israel, which basically hadn't been in existence for roughly 2000 years. Right. So it just seemed miraculous. Well, you know, this sort of death rebirth narrative. Then the next big confrontation with mortality was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I was pretty much a young boy when this is happening. And I remember in school, they're telling us there could be a big uh, war between the U.S. and Russia, <clears throat> and there could be nuclear weapons. And if so, you know, just duck and cover under your desk. That could help. And of course, that was terrifying. And it didn't seem like it would help that much to duck under your desk. <laughs> right. Uh, but now it was not just, you know, the Germans trying to kill the Jews and take over the world. Now it was the U.S. and Russia potentially blowing up the world. And that whole propensity to death, um, you know, it's not that reassuring to think about the strategy of survival with nuclear weapons was called mutual assured destruction. Right. And, um, you know, but that relies on people that don't want to commit suicide, that care about life, that care about their children. And there's a lot of people that don't. So how you, you know, rely on human survival, you know, and people that they're unwilling to commit suicide when there's so many people that are willing to commit suicide. Um, that was anxiety provoking as well. So I, I think this propensity for human cruelty and then for the potential death of the world through, you know, massive nuclear war. So I read a lot of those books uh, on the beach, and, you know, just, so I wouldn't say I was obsessed with death, but the fact that life was so fragile was a big part of my education. So I think it was, in a way, the family, even though my aunt had died and my mom was sick, my other aunt was sick, um, I think the, the loving extended nature of the family kind of insulated me from that. So it was more the kind of um, global death and global totalitarianism that that really occupied my big fears. That's it's interesting, just the difference between you saying like your family didn't talk about death at that time, but then it sounds like you were very well educated through Jewish history and the Holocaust specifically, and then to take on, you know, reading about the human missile, missile crisis. What I'm hearing you say is like the greater global events or threats is what caused you to have this existential worry which then is what shaped your thinking to how do we reduce this type of potential suffering or actual suffering 
Yeah, yeah. I think the the other part when I look back on it is that um, I was insulated from feeling personally vulnerable hmm. um, by a, a number of factors. So the first one is this American exceptionalism. So, you know, born in 53, the height of American power after we won World War II, Europe is devastated, we're doing the Marshall Plan. Um, I just grew up with this idea. And then in the 60s, you know, when I was 10 to 15 or 18 or so, what happened then, or 17, what happened then was the U.S. going to the moon. And so <clears throat> it just felt like I'm, you know, part of this leading the world, this group that's leading the world. Then I was Jewish. And so the kind of education that I got about the chosen people and the miraculous uh, reestablishment of Israel after 2000 years, then I'm white. And then I'm male, and I was the firstborn male child. And then on top of that, my dad was a doctor, my family was well off. So I had basically every kind of background that you could have to help you think that um, you could make a difference in the world. And that you're safe, right? And that I was safe. So I felt like I was able to not be overwhelmed by the fear of uh, another Hitler or the fear of nuclear weapons, um, that I could come from a position of safety and security and look at these terrifying things. So I felt that fear has been my driving engine that has kept me focused for all these years. And fortunately, it wasn't overwhelming fear that I was paralyzed with it, but it was fear that came because I felt, look, I have all these privileges and I can address these fears and maybe I could even do something about them. Were you always aware of the privileges or when did that really set in for you? Well, I think that started happening. Um, you know, I was very interested in the other. And because of the Cuban Missile Crisis and all, I decided and that my great grandparents on the other side had come from Russia to America, I took Russian in high school. Hmm. And we were at a very great high school. Um, I grew up in a house designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's that my parents had built. So I was in this extraordinary structure that was unlike anybody else's home. It was just really gorgeous and freeing and blending inside and outside. Um, and I think what then happened was this um, growing sense about sort of politics and and I actually was in 1968. So the you the Democratic Convention in Chicago. I was just um, 14 and a half years, almost 15, but I wasn't even 15 years when the convention happened. And I was already I was working for McCarthy. Hmm. McCarthy as a precinct captain, no, no adults were really doing that in the area that I was. Um, and I actually um, wanted to be closer to it so that even though I, nobody, uh, <laughs> hardly anybody voted for McCarthy, um, I ended up volunteering again when I'm still 14 years old, 14 and a half for Mayor Daley. And so I worked as a runner between the delegates 
So I was actually inside the convention when the riots took place outside. And I remember going down by the media room and seeing all these TVs of all these riots, the police riots downtown Chicago, but they were far, the, far enough away from the Democratic convention that, and we had all sorts of rings of security around it so that it was like business as usual at the, at the convention, but supported by massive uh, police riots. So that kind of radicalized me. And then it was a growing realization that this next big um, evil, you could say, was the Vietnam War. And that I might actually be asked to go fight and kill or be killed in Vietnam. And so as I was sort of taking that in and thinking about it, um, I tried to figure out what is really my response, you know, mm -hmm. to um, how, how do I think about it? You know, you could say it, used, it was the Germans and then it was the Russians, but now it's my own country that's doing things that I disagreed with that were like imperial overreach. Mm -hmm. And so I studied a lot about nonviolent resistance. I studied Gandhi and Thoreau. I studied, um, you know, the US civil rights movement. I did a lot of um, thinking about it. And so in my confrontation with Vietnam, what I realized is that I was not a conscientious objector. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Um, I was not a conscientious objector because you have to be a pacifist against all wars. Hmm. And so I wasn't that because because of Hitler. I think sometimes you really have to defend yourself. Um, I think for me, this idea was that um, you need to stay and fight. And a way to do that is to drain the system of the most energy. And so I thought, OK, I would serve my country by going to jail and that I would be a draft resistor and that I wasn't going to run to Canada and I wasn't going to uh, pretend I was gay or crazy, those things that could get you out. And I wasn't going to pretend I had bone spurs, which uh, Trump had done. <laughs> I would just go to jail. And so I thought about it. And at this point, I had a passport. I had a driver's license. I had a social security number. I was paying taxes. I was in high school. You know, every possible way that the government could know about me, they did. Right. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just not send in the postcard to register. That's how it begins. You have to voluntarily register for the, for the draft. Right. And so I just said, okay, I'm not going to send in this postcard. And they're going to come and they're going to arrest me. And my parents were not that sympathetic, but they, they certainly didn't want me to go to Vietnam. And they were against the war. And so they, they came to respect and appreciate what I was thinking about. But what my dad said at one point was that this is a big choice because if you do uh, become a draft resistor and get caught and, and get put in jail, you'll have a felony conviction mm -hmm. and you'll never be able to be a normal job. You won't be able to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything that requires you know, some kind of license because you'll be a criminal. Right. That's where I said, okay, I just think I'll have to pay that price. That's something I'm going to have to live with. So that's what kind of set me up 
for the world is crazy, not just uh, the Germans, not just the Russians, my own country as well. There's massive political violence. Um, and I believed at the time, all this propaganda that LSD, if you took it six times, it made you certifiably insane, that it was all hallucinations, there was nothing real to it. Um, you, know, you could have brain damage, you could have chromosome damage, all of these things. Uh, I just didn't know enough right. to know they were propaganda. So I believed it all. And what really started changing things for me is in my Russian class, and, and by the way, before that, in uh, 1970, after my junior year of high school, my parents sent me to Russia and I spent the summer in Russia hmm. learning Russian. And not only that, but um, this is where I got a sense of both my privilege that I could travel like this, but also they gave me some prayer books to bring to people at the synagogue because this was during communism and religion was banned. Religion was the opium of the masses and there was really um, against the law for Jewish prayer books. So it was kind of interesting that in a small, relatively small suitcase to take my clothes to, uh, to Russia, my parents put in a couple Jewish prayer books. Um, and so being in Russia and seeing the Russians uh, in particular, it's uh, sort of classic, but you know, I went for a walk on the beach with a Russian girl that worked at the place, the school that we were at. And I was like, you don't want to kill me. I don't want to kill you. But, you know, we're trained to think that all Russians are evil and they want to kill Americans. And you're probably trained that all Americans are evil and want to kill you. And it's not that way at all. And so that really opened my eyes a lot. But then in my senior year of high school, a friend of mine in a Russian class uh, gave me a book to read, which I, I, I was reading frequently. I love to read. And so this book was great. And I gave it back to my friend and he said, do you realize the author of this book wrote some of it while he was under the influence of LSD? And, uh, and I was just like, that's impossible. That can't be done. LSD is terrible. It doesn't lead to anything good. And he encouraged me to check it out, which I did. And as it turned out, lo and behold, it was true. And it was Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. And that's what really opened me up to the fact that I had probably been told a biased and incomplete story about psychedelics, which then started me thinking, uh, maybe I should try them. And then when I finally did try them, you know, the classic psychedelics, the diminishment of your ego orientation, you're opening up into something bigger. I had this intimation, I had difficult trips, but I had this feeling that I'm connected to something much, much larger than myself. Before we, before we go deep down this rabbit hole, which I really want to, I just want to ask a couple of questions about what sure. you've talked about. Um, did you end up going to jail? No, good. Thank you for asking that. So here's the most astonishing thing. Um, I never registered for the draft. Hmm. I never sent in the postcard and absolutely nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. Nothing. nothing. It was like a loophole in the system. That's interesting. I, I later found out that around 60,000 people never registered for the draft, but enough people were coming to the draft boards, were doing it. So the war machine was filling up. Was satisfied. But, yeah. But yeah. from my point of view, um, 
pretty amazing. Nothing happened at all. And so then I had a difficult decision, which is, do I turn myself in? Because this strategy was about nonviolent resistance and about draining the system of all this energy by having to put me in jail. And, and so I thought about that for a while. You know, should I voluntarily um, let them know I didn't register for the draft? Right, right. Because you were doing this to prove a point, And then with this yeah. loophole, it kind of defeated your mission. Um, yeah, yeah, it hmm. did. And so, but then I thought, um, and I think this is really um, an interesting point for me, which is that, and in general, a better uh, strategy, which is um, create the positive alternative. So once I started taking LSD and had this sense that this unit of mystical experience could be kind of an antidote to racism, genocide, authoritarianism, you know, the fact that we're all in it together, it could be an antidote to um, environmental destruction, um, that this um, mission then that I would adopt would be to try to bring back psychedelic research. Mm -hmm. And that was... Um, sort of out of desperation of the murderous nature of humankind that I had come to uh, understand even better and not just always out there, but my own country. Right. And so um, I decided that rather than turn myself in, I should just create the positive alternative, which would be a world where people had more opportunities uh, for spiritual experiences where they all felt their, felt their connections. So I, I didn't, voluntarily call attention to myself. I just said, okay, I've slipped through this loophole. Now, what, what then happened is in 1976, uh, Jimmy Carter got elected. And, you know, he got inaugurated in January of 20, uh, 1997. And the very first day that Carter was in office, he pardoned all the draft resistors. Huh. That was really the, you know, one of the things just to contrast it with was that Bill Clinton, the time, his first day in office, he tried to um, approve gays in the military. And there was so much backlash that he couldn't do that. But the thing is about uh, Jimmy Carter that he could do the pardons. That was within his authority. He didn't have to have anybody to implement it. And once he pardoned the draft resistors, it was done. So starting in 77 is when I started thinking, okay, maybe I'm not um, going to have an entire career as an underground psychedelic therapist. Maybe there's some way for me to surface. So the very beginning of my um, identification as an adult, a young adult was I'm a counterculture drug using criminal. And that's really the basis of my identity. And so when uh, the draft resistors were pardoned by Carter. Then I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe there's some way back from counterculture and suppression to being part of the mainstream. But I, I didn't at that point have any idea I would go to Harvard and get a PhD from the Kennedy School of Government, stuff like that. This was just really like starting this thinking that uh, maybe I wasn't uh, going to have a complete underground life. So before you got to this kind of revelation that you can create like a different outcome that's ultimately a positive outcome like you said that you read sounds like voraciously and studied all these large global events did you have any kind of daily practice about mortality besides from studying 
or was it really just kind of piecing together the existential fear you had and the global events and trying to navigate a way to make that have a better solution? Or were you meditating before you found psychedelics or were you, were you actively well, pra practicing religion or anything like that? Well, no, not really. You know, I was very much involved in the Hebrew school, Sunday school. And one of the things that whenever I used to tease my parents, I would say that they drove me to psychedelics because my parents <laughs> uh, didn't do anything. <laughs> it did not turn me into a man. It was like a good party, but nothing happened. <laughs> and so that emptiness of feeling like I wanted some sort of uh, rites of passage. I want some kind of a better understanding of where I fit into the world and some kind of spiritual connection. None of that happened with my bar mitzvah. So that was really, so I, I, I didn't meditate. There was a time where, at, so I started new college in Sarasota, Florida at 17. Um, it was an experimental college. And there was this, um, again, now I started school in 71. So this is around the time that the Beatles, shortly after the Beatles had brought back uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Transcendental Meditation. And they were, you know, trying to make meditation more um, popular. And there was a lot of people that were going into uh, Transcendental Meditation. And there was this girl, Bonnie Simmons, that was at college, also, you know, 18 years old, uh, freshman in college. And she was teaching meditation. And I was pretty shy and I really liked her. I thought she was great. And so I decided I would do some meditation. Um, but it, it quickly became clear to me that she cared more about meditation than she did about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that um, this like sly uh, attempt to uh, start a romance wasn't going to work. <laughs> but also that um, I started learning that some of the things that the transcendental meditation people were saying were not true you know they were talking about how your mantra is customized and unique just for you and you have to keep a secret and don't tell anybody about it and stuff like that so um i kind of got disillusioned you know with meditation through this encounter with how transcendental meditation was being practiced mm -hmm. um, and i've still now never really meditated i mean it depends on what you how you define meditation i really like to smoke marijuana okay and Kind of let my mind flow and open up but i'm not seeking sort of the nothingness behind the thoughts i'm actually seeking good thoughts and then hmm. i'll try to work on them so yeah it may be surprising for people to realize that i personally don't really meditate i've not ever been to like a meditation retreat it doesn't even really interest me i'm more interested in action but i do think that my marijuana times um you know, or even when I'm sitting for people, which I don't do that often these days, but when you sit for people and they do psychedelic trips, um, you know, you're quiet a lot. You're quiet. You're sitting there. You're focused attention. You're not so wrapped up in yourself. You're trying to see what uh, the person might need. But they could go an hour or two without even speaking anything. So I am, I have spent a fair amount of time sort of quietly sitting. And just being inside my own head, I, I did in my very first beginnings of learning about psychedelics, I encountered John Lilly. And he was the uh, fellow that invented the flotation tank. And he also did early work with dolphin intelligence. And he did work with ketamine and 
he was a psychedelic researcher also. So I ended up uh, building some flotation tanks, buying flotation tanks. I had a flotation tank at my house. Um, so it's kind of like meditation in that you're quiet with yourself. Mm -hmm. but I think what I was doing in those states, I don't know if it would be called meditation. I was just sort of you know, relaxing and seeing what came up. But once there was say, a good idea or, you know, a, a complex emotion, I would follow that. I wouldn't try to keep going beyond that. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you made a good point though. Like meditation itself is a broad term and you can, like you can define it in a million different ways. That's why there's so many practices. So the stuff that you're talking about, I, I would say those are forms of meditation, but. Well, um, I, I, I think so. So one time I took LSD and went in the flotation tank. Hmm. And I was there for 17 hours. Wow. Yeah, well, I, it was my own tank. So I fell asleep <laughs> in it. Um, you know, it's heavily salt water. I was able to pee in it. You know, I could stay 17 hours. And I could yeah. be in the tank and it didn't, you know, it would get filtered out or it didn't, you know, it was antiseptic anyway. So I think those were a lot of quiet times in good ways, but, but I also think that this idea where I talked about um, this, this sort of political philosophy of um, how I didn't turn myself in, but I wanted to create the positive alternative. There's a great quote I just wanted to read from Buckminster Fuller. Okay. And he, he said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Yeah, I think that's true in so many different forms in our society. And I think it's something that personally, like I'm having to remind myself of as I'm navigating an early career. So hmm. that's a fitting, it's a fitting quote, I think, for, for most of human time. Um, did anything specific come out of that 17 hour? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was one of the most important experiences, I would say, of my life. Um, it was after I had um, committed, you could say, the classic male fuck up of having um, um, a girlfriend who was living in another city and uh, we had a kind of an open relationship, but then near the end she started saying that I shouldn't sleep with anybody else until she came back for the summer and um, as it turned out, an old girlfriend came into town and I did sleep with her. And then my girlfriend found out about it and um, broke up with me. And so I went into the tank to try to figure out why I hadn't been uh, courageous enough either to not sleep with my old girlfriend or to tell my, my, my current girlfriend that um, I wasn't going to agree to that. Right. Um, so it was really about trying to find... Um, a way to trust myself to see how I had gone wrong. I really loved this woman and had um, lost her through my own behavior. Um, and so it, it was the um, closest actually that I, uh, I had kind of, a, I wouldn't say psychotic, but um, I, I knew enough to stay in the tank, but I had this idea that she had, um, missed, she was going to call me or something to pick up her stuff. She had just left and um, but that call didn't happen. And so in my mind, I was like, hmm, 
oh my God, she didn't make this call. She didn't want to pick up her stuff. It must be so hard on her. She, she must have, um, maybe something's wrong with her and maybe she's attempting suicide. Maybe she's so depressed, she's going to kill herself. Mm. And I went through this whole thing about, okay, I got to get out of the tank. Now, meanwhile, this is about um, 300, 250, 300 micrograms of LSD. So it's, it's a major dose, three or four mm. times normal hit is right now. Um, and, and I'm like, okay, you know, she's in a terrible shape. I have to go help her. I have to go save her. It's just, but I, I knew that this um, impulse was something that I should resist um, as I thought through it. And then it took hours and hours, but I finally realized that it wasn't the case that uh, she couldn't live without me. She had left me. She had chosen to do that. Actually, the whole thing was a screen to not feel the f feelings that I thought I might not be able to live without her. And like it was all ego defense. Essentially. It was all complete projection. Mm -hmm. You know, and once I and this took hours and hours and hours to go through. And one, once I did that um, and realized that uh, this was about my own anxieties, that I couldn't live without her, then I could sort of face that and understand why. I didn't have the courage to say, no, I wasn't going to agree not to sleep with other people until she came back or why I, you know, didn't tell my old girlfriend who came into town that I didn't want to sleep with her. So I felt then that there was this whole, um, self-hatred, this, you know, that, that I had done this and I had lost this beautiful love affair. Um, and then I felt this image of this self-hatred, being like um, these barbed fish hooks in my cells. I'd sort of been snared, caught by the self-hatred. And then I had this feeling that this could lead to cancer or it could mm. lead to, um, you know, immune system problems. It, it, it could lead to health consequences. How old were you when, this, when you had this experience? Um, this particular experience, I was around um, 29. Okay. And... I had this sense that um, I had to forgive myself. I had to understand the dynamics, why I was so weak and did that and how I could not do that in the future, how I could find love again and, uh, you know, keep it, all of that. And then I felt that um, I just had to accept myself. And I had this image of these barbed fish hooks that were going to be like cancer. You know, they relaxed. And so all of my cells had these like fish hooks sort of float out of them. Hmm. Um, and then I had this image of this like burst of light, like an X-ray, almost like a radiation that was going to kill any of these lingering self-hatred related cancer cells. Um, and there was a couple of these bursts of light. And um, this was my own inner imagery. And, and then after hours and hours and hours and hours and the LSD is wearing off, then I just fell asleep in the tank and stayed there for a while and ended up yeah, you know, being in the tank for 17 hours. But when I came out, I felt that I had resolved this issue, that I had um, understood the, my own weakness. I had understood that what I would need to do in the future to really find love. And um, I had, for I wouldn't say completely forgiven myself, but I had um, addressed the self-hatred. Um, so it was one of the most important um, experiences I've ever had with LSD and also in the flotation tank. Do you know 
where that self-hatred originated from? Can you tell us oh, yeah. more about that? Yeah. Yeah, because I had sort of said one thing and done another. Oh, okay. So it was related to that specific event. It wasn't like a lifelong like no, 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 no. Okay. No, 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 not at all. It was it was that specific event. Here I was. I was in love with this woman. She was incredible. Um, Did we that... did for a while. She'd gone away to go to graduate school and was away for a couple of months. And but we had always had um, you know this understanding that we could be with other people, but it just got to be a bit emotionally too difficult for her. Sure. And uh, I mean, thank you for sharing this. This is incredibly vulnerable. Do you feel like that experience kind of reshaped and reformed the way that you sought relationships? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. So you were starting to tell me about the first time that you used psychedelics and about the time that you went to Russia and had that experience with that Russian woman and you just had that realization of, you know, our government say this, but when we see each other on the street somewhere, like as citizens, we just recognize each other as people and like those global geopolitical dynamics don't really apply. So um, I think that's really important to remember just as things become more and more polarized as especially right now with, you know, you mentioned the stability of the world from the 1950s until now, essentially. And now we're, we're heading towards some type of, you know, geopolitical instability and probably going from a unipolar world to a, at least a bipolar, if not a multipolar world. But I think we need to remember that very topic that citizens are citizens and governments are governments and the way that we relate to each other on a personal level needs to be focused on unification and loving each other and all those sorts of things. But um, I just yeah. want to hear more well, about like let, your... Let me add one other thing to yeah, that. Yeah. Which, um, again, I had talked a lot about how my formative years um, as a young, young man still in high school was about the um, going to the moon. And so I think that there was this whole sense from the astronauts and from that about how we're all in it together. Hmm. How, you know, this is one planet. You look at the planet from space and you don't see the different countries. You don't see the different religions. You just realize that it's all one entity. Experience, yeah, entity. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, yeah. and that, that we have more in common with each other through, you know, we now know that for sure through DNA, then we, you know, there's very few things that separate us. You know, skin color is like a trivial part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. So that this idea that we are part of something larger and that we are, um, that there's an underlying unity that is deeper than our tribe, our religion, our country, our gender, our sexual orientation, our economic status, anything like that, that that became this um, sort of thought that if more people, if everybody could feel our interconnectedness, then we wouldn't have Hitler. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't blow each other up. Um, You know, so that the psychedelics that then were able to produce this kind of unit of mystical experience, but that there were other ways to do it as well, which validated it. it. It didn't take it away from it, it added to it. That it's it's sort of a basic human experience. It's not something that's inherent to the drug itself. 
So did maps or, you know, just this general desire to bring psychedelics to people in a legal way, was that kind of like your going to the moon mission? Yeah. And that became my mission at age 18. So this is where, okay, I, I might go to jail for being a draft resistor. I can't have a normal job. I can be an underground psychedelic therapist. And also this was after the backlash to the psychedelic 60s. So 1970 was the Controlled Substances Act. And then psychedelic research just started being squashed in America and squashed. We were at the height of America's power. So we were able to squash psychedelic research all over the world. So just as a way to fight back against this murderous, to get back to mortality, mm -hmm. the way in which um, people are killing each other. And I've done that for thousands of years and that our weaponry is so powerful now that you know, our technological brilliance has exceeded our emotional and spiritual capacity to deal with the tools that we've created. And we see that with global warming, with what we're doing with energy. We see that in so many different ways with the uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons and, you know, North Korea getting missiles and all, all, you know, nuclear weapons that this kind of balancing out of the brilliance of our minds, our rational minds, with what we need is an accelerated emotional and spiritual maturity mm -hmm. for individuals and for humanity as a whole. And if we don't get that, we might not survive. And a lot of what's going on now, too, is, you know, willful denial. You know, there's so many people that sort of probably deep in their hearts, they realize the climate is changing, but they will deny it. Right. And so how, but it's, they're overwhelmed with the fears and anxieties if it's true. So, well, there's probably some level of guilt too. Yeah, I think that's, that's right as well. So how do we end up, uh, we, we need to help people process all these fears and anxieties. That's where MDMA assisted therapy comes in. So psychedelic assisted therapy is not just about people having this mystical sense of how you're all connected. Mm -hmm. And then, but it's also about healing trauma, healing fear and anxiety and depression and substance abuse and dependence on different things that it's so much um, a part of this um, overall effort, um, which we see now the massive mental health crises that we have. How do we really move forward at a time when People, you know, we have such a large percentage of people that believe the big lie that Trump really won the election. You know, I don't think they even really believe it. I think it's just, it's a tribal identification. It's irrational, but we've got all these people that are, you know, motivated by irrational factors and often acting in self-destructive ways. And the tools we have are so powerful. So any case, that's why from 18 years old, when I was 1972, when I decided to focus my life on psychedelics, after reading a book with Stan Groff and exchanging letters with him back in 1972, now all these years later, it still makes sense as that's what I really need to keep working on. It still makes sense to try to bring these tools to more wider uh, use to, so that we can think about mortality and death, not as a tragedy, not as something we have to avoid, not as something, you know, all these people that are looking at, you know, longevity and trying to make it so they never die. Right. Uh, I think that there's this maturity that we can reach where death 
death is precious. Death is gives life meaning. The finitude, you know, the fact that it, our lives are finite. If they were infinite, why well, do something today? You could just easily do it tomorrow. It's not as precious. But the fact that it's such a short time that we're alive makes everything precious. So death is something to be, in some ways, grateful for. Um, you know, hopefully without a lot of pain and suffering. But ne nevertheless, I think it, it's the reevaluation that death is not an accident or a tragedy, but it's, you know, built into the cycles of life and death, this death rebirth process, and that we need to um, see that we're part of that as well and accept that and see the value and beauty of it. For somebody who says they don't meditate, you certainly sound like a meditator to me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, those are all those are all salient points, right? Because everything that is born will die, and yeah, I, I think you made a really key point about if you had unlimited time, then that would take away any sense of urgency or preciousness, and yeah, the only thing that we know for sure is that we will all die. So um, I also think like the the, the longevity craze or movement that's happening right now is actually making our societal problems. It's not making them worse. I guess it's just a byproduct of, it's just an avoidance of mortality. Yeah. I think it's a big mistake. Um, I mean, it, again, it is good for us to try to live longer. It's good for us to try to cure disease and to try to make it so that we can live to 120 years or I mean, it's even, we take it for granted, but a hundred or 150 or 200 years ago, average lifespan was decades less than it is now. Yeah. It was like 35 years old, essentially. Yeah. So we, we, so I think it's good to try to prolong life to some extent, uh, but you know, this idea of trying to eliminate death seems very foolish and immature. Yeah. The way I try to kind of wrap, both of these ideas up, whether speaking with patients or just with friends and all of, like otherwise acquaintances is basically the two things that you should try to do are prolong or avoid chronic disease as long as you can and to become as comfortable with your mortality as possible. So basically you're balancing this line of, well, I'd like to live as healthy as I can for as long as I can. But if and when I die, I'm ready to do that, too. You know, I, I, we've just been through um, the High Holy Days, the Jewish High Holy Days, mm -hmm. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there's a beautiful prayer during the Yom Kippur service that basically goes like this. It's like, if you could banish death and there would be no new generations and no new ideas and no mm -hmm. new babies and no... Um, you know, and that the people that are already here would be the only people that would ever be here. And that all the ways that they act and do would be the, the main ways that would stay the same for forever. Would you really take that? Would you really banish death? Would you really mm. banish uh, the newness? And, you know, we know all of us kind of think, oh, you know, we learned we're in a different world than our parents. And we taught our parents some things. They taught us loads of stuff, too. But we brought some new things to our parents that were really, really important. For them sometimes so would you really banish death if you could and it's it was a very interesting and moving prayer that every year we read the same prayer but it's you know the conclusion is of course you wouldn't right yeah because 
because yeah i mean i as as painful as change can be sometimes i think most people recognize how important it is yeah um we talked a little bit about like mdma use cases for ptsd and those things um and i'm i'm familiar with some of the use cases for psychedelics and oncology patients are there any other specific patient like use cases you're looking at or are excited about oh yeah 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 well there was an interesting study in england by ben sessa and this was with um people with alcohol use disorder and Mm. with mdma assisted therapy and what it turned out to be is that almost all these people had unprocessed trauma Mm -hmm. and they were running away from that through alcohol but if you help them process the trauma then they can get a better handle on their alcohol use right so i think psychedelics for substance abuse is a very very important area um mdma for couples therapy Mm. it could become one of the most important use cases for mdma and so we are just starting to do stories uh, and research into what metrics would we use to determine if MDMA really does help with couples therapy. And the one obvious one is or not, but that's not the metric to use because some people may realize they don't really belong together and that's not a failure. failure, Right. Yeah. So there, there has to be ways that we look at communication styles or something like that. We're, we're doing the work, um, Israeli, there's a small group of, of Israelis and Palestinians that are using uh, MDMA and ayahuasca together. Hmm. And it's both to work through their kind of collective fears and traumas of the other, but also to try to have these uh, shared experiences of the deeper unit of consciousness so that they can see what we have in common. One of the Israelis talked about how um, powerful it was for him to hear Arabic music and that when he normally hears Arabic music, it's of the music of the other. And he gets really scared and doesn't like it. But with the ayahuasca, he could see the beauty of this Arabic music. Um, so, you know, now there's actually a, um, from the people that were in this group, there's a duet. It's a Palestinian and an Israeli who play music together. Um, so I think conflict resolution, is one of the good areas. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, social anxiety. There's enormous social anxiety. I think MDMA can be very effective for um, social anxiety. Although you know we need to, we did we've only done one small study with uh, in autistic adults with social anxiety with MDMA therapy, and we were looking to reduce the social anxiety, and it, it worked great for that. Um, Beautiful. But it's just small. So, so I think when we talk about MDMA-assisted therapy, there's a lot of things that therapy is for. And in general, uh, MDMA may be able to be used in almost all of the purposes for which people go to therapy. Um, we well, shall see. There's going to be a lot more research coming up ahead into uh, eating disorders, for example. Is yeah, one. yeah. Because there's okay. so much associated trauma with that population. Yeah, um, driving those disorders. Yeah, and also there's a lack of um, 
sort of self-acceptance. There's like talk, get back to the self-hatred, you know, and self-criticism. A lot of eating disorders are people that, you know, they can't control a lot of things. They can control their weight or mm -hmm. what they eat at least, but they're always uh, super critical about how they are. Um, and so I think MDMA can really promote a sense of self-acceptance, self-love that could be very effective with eating disorders. Postpartum depression is something we mm. want to get as well. And MDMA releases oxytocin, which is a hormone about bonding. Social um, cues. Yeah. Yeah. Connectedness. So I, think, I think MDMA for postpartum depression is worth exploring. What about um, similar to the oncology populations? Like what about transplant populations? Like people that are either transplant patients or transplant candidates. To me, that seems like a, an obvious place to go just to deal with that existential threat of, of a terminal diagnosis. How do I cope with yeah. it? Well, well, I think that there's been very important studies with psilocybin, and we've done one with MDMA as well, about people with life-threatening illnesses okay. who have you know, large amounts of anxiety, depression, and how do you help them? Um, so yeah, I think, I think a therapy to help people to really, um, again, accept death and not, oh, here, here's a good story actually. So this is back um, in the eighties and a friend of mine, her father was dying in his fifties and he just was denying it and denying it. He was pretending it wasn't happening. Um, and uh, this, this friend basically said, maybe, maybe it would help him to do MDMA. Um, Nikki was her name. And so we, we talked about it and actually um, arranged for her father to have some MDMA experiences. And he accepted the fact that he was dying. He was able to um, get over that fear. And he realized that he had thought that this denial that he was actually dying and that the cancer was progressing, that somehow or other this denial of death would help him live longer. Hmm. And then he realized though that it kept him from enjoying life because he was constantly anxious and but denying this. And under the influence of MDMA, he accepted the fact that he was dying. And then he realized that since he was dying, he should use the remaining days that he, have, he has left as full as possible which then filled him with a certain amount of joy and acceptance. And this was time with his daughter. And, and um, so I think what um, he came to realize is that the acceptance of death mm -hmm. and the subsequent acceptance of the preciousness of the days that he had left and his increased enjoyment of those days actually contributed to him living longer. And he Absolutely. Did. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. What I'm hearing is MDMA is a tool for acceptance. And I think lots of suffering, maybe not all of it, but certainly a lot of suffering is due to people's avoidance of whatever that might be. It can be the avoidance of death. It can be the avoidance of, you know, just dealing with the processing of their own basic human emotions. And if, if, if there's a chemical, tool that can help people get to acceptance faster than probably anything else that we have, then I, it seems like a, a very worthwhile road to go after. For sure. But, but I would say that it's more about the, the safe context, the therapeutic context, or even if you do it with friends, but where you feel safe with whatever emotions you can 
experience and express. So it's not just here's the pill. So that's where it's different than classic, you know, pharma company drugs. Sure. That work just by themselves. These are really, we're talking about them as adjuncts to psychotherapy. But within that, um, yeah, tremendous changes can take place in yeah. people's lives. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I know I've taken up about an hour of your time so far and having a great time talking about it. If yeah. there's anything else that you wanted to talk about while thinking of this conversation um, related to your mortality specifically or, or on a grander scale? Well, yeah, so I'm turning 70 um, on November 30th. And uh, Alex Gray, by the way, the psychedelic artist, is turning 70 on November 29th. So we're having a shared uh, birthday party at the oh. Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, you turn 70, naturally, you do start thinking about mortality. Um, 60 as well, 50 as well. <laughs> uh, so, um, again, I just... Um, more thinking about uh, appreciating the time that I have, how, how remarkable it is, and that um, you want to make a contribution while you're alive. Uh, and so it, it's helped me to take on challenges that I would otherwise be nervous about because I realized that I might not have all these opportunities at different times. I should accept them while I have them. Um, and so I, I think the challenge is to try to live a life so that when you it's your time to die, that you don't feel like you uh, regretted not ever really fully living. And so, well, just as a good example of my mortality. So I just recently went through prostate cancer. Oh. And um, last summer, actually, it was uh, detected. I, we detected it early through the PSA test. Um, at no point was there any evidence that it had spread. And you know, I had the prostate surgery and I seem to be fine every three months since then I've been doing a PSA test. But the thing is, once you have this cancer diagnosis of any kind, it's kind of natural to think, okay, you know, my time is limited. What am I doing with my life? What do I want to add? What do I want to subtract? You know, it's kind of a reality check. Like, oh my God, you know, I thought, you know, my dad died of a heart attack. My grandfather died of a heart attack. I never thought really that I would get cancer. I just thought I'd, you know, go out by a heart attack or something like that. So when you get cancer, you just think, what do I want to change about my life? Because it's obviously clearly limited in time. And so the good thing for me was that it took me only five minutes or so to think about it. And then I came to this like, I don't want to change anything. <laughs> I'm doing just what I want to do. Really? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There was really nothing that I wanted to change. So um, it was that sense then that I'm trying to live as if these are my last days and I'm doing what I most want to do. And I think bringing psychedelics up from the underground, you know, is indeed um for me, at least, my point of leverage, where I get meaning from. And so there's, um, yeah, no changes so you, that I really wanted to make. So you essentially had the realization that if you died in that moment, in that five minutes, then you were going to be content. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Then I mean, yeah. congratulations on living a full life. 
based on what's important to you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I think about my mortality or everybody's mortality is. It's really we're here much shorter than it seems, and so try to do what you most care about. Well said, and I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. Um, I know we're both tired from recent travels, but really appreciate your time and thanks for the work that you do in educating the world and trying to make it a, a better experience for everything and everybody. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient physician relationship is never established through this medium and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you're having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with at least three people. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.